Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Richard Parker says he fell in love with Kentucky history while studying as an undergraduate at Murray State University and then as a graduate student at Western Kentucky University. He now lives in Paducah, where he and his wife Emily operate Atomic City Tours, which we'll hear more about in just a moment. Richard is also a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. His talks include The Role of the Steamboat in the Underground Railroad and Kentucky's only Wild West show. On his walking tours of Paducah, he now leads people through a bourbon history tour and tasting. We welcome him not only to the podcast, but to our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Richard, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited uh, to just kind of share my love of uh, Kentucky history with our, uh, our your listeners. Have you always been a history lover? Uh, so yeah, pretty much. Uh, my father used to take uh, my brother and my mom and I to any, anywhere we went on vacations. We'd end up somewhere with, at a Civil War museum or a Civil War, War historical site. So that kind of uh, piqued my interest early on. Um, I was also an Eagle Scout uh, with the Boy Scouts of America. So we did a lot of traveling to various sites, um, historical sites and uh, we used to visit shallow national battlefield every spring. Um, so I was really always exposed to, to history um, and just really fell in love with it. Well, tell me um, your interest and your research about steamboats, uh, river traffic, the Underground Railroad, and the plight of the enslaved uh, who were making their way north. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess I kind of started to, uh, you know, connect some dots for me, uh, which kind of led to my Escape to Freedom, uh, the role of the Steamboat and the Underground Railroad um, presentation that I'm doing for the Kentucky Humanities. Um, But it it pretty much started out through a lot of things. Paducah is really known for its steamboats. Uh, We still have uh, 40 plus steamboats a year visit uh, Paducah with, with travelers. Um, but historically, that's really what the, the city, uh, how the city grew so quickly. Um, so I was really always fascinated with that. There's still a really rich history here. Um, we have a band called the Wheelhouse Rousters who still do a lot of the traditional folk songs that would have been sung aboard the uh, decks of the steamboats uh, about the roustabout. So I'd done a lot of research in that. But actually what kind of connected the dots for me is I was sitting in this restaurant uh, a couple years ago in Nashville, and it's a Civil War uh, restaurant, uh, and it's just decorated with a lot of Civil War memorabilia on the wall. And I was looking up, and there was this map of the Underground Railroad, and it had about three arrows running through Paducah. And it was, of course, the Tennessee River, the Cumberland River, and then the Ohio River. And that started kind of, well, wow, you know, how... uh, Oh, how's that happening? So then I started to, you know, really think, well, there's only really one way that would have been possible was uh, 
the steamboat. So I started to do some research into that. Well, uh, I think that's a story that is intriguing to a lot of people who may have studied the Civil War and may have uh, not realized uh, how key Paducah and the other river ports that you're going to be able to tell us about were really uh, present in that day and age and uh, how they really were, as you say in your description, uh, an interstate for uh, those enslaved who were making their way to the north. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, great, uh, a great analysis there. Yeah, so in my research, I found that a lot of times that slaves would be rented out to steamboat companies from uh, their slaveholders if there wasn't enough work on, on the, the farm at the, the time. It was another way for the slaveholder to, to make money. And so the slaves would go work as deckhands, they would work as cooks, uh, maids, uh, there's pretty much any occupation that was on the steamboat that was kind of the manual labor. Um, and that, that would give them a lot of freedom. And they would travel to these various uh, uh, river port cities. And, you know, sometimes they were allowed off the boats to go do, uh, you know, uh, various jobs for the steamboat captain. And then even in some instances, some were paid um, their, their wages. Uh, they would hold on to the money themselves um, until they could take it to their slaveholder. Um, and then in some instances, too, in my research, I found that actual members of the that were traveling on the, the, the boats themselves would often tip a lot of these uh, ens enslaved uh, workers. And so that gave them some money for for freedom um, to do what what they kind of wanted in the river boat uh, port. So uh, really, this kind of bond of trust would be. Uh, established. Now, in some instances, too, it was just uh, just chance. Um, Cincinnati was known as a pretty strong uh, anti-slavery uh, port, and so sometimes if an if a enslaved person could slip away from the boat, they could actually find their way through the city, and there's a couple different instances where that happened, that they would just blend in with kind of what was going on in the port and, and disappear, uh, but it really fascinating. Um, there's there's a, there was a lot of instances where um, a lot of enslaved people were working outside uh, outside of their slaveholder for months, and that they would just travel the Ohio, the Mississippi, the Tennessee, and the Cumberland, working on these steamboats, um, and and you know basically uh, they would they would come back and you know pay their slaveholder the money, and then they would they would go back out on on these ships. So it's really fascinating, really interesting. Um, all the different uh, facets of, of how these enslaved people found ways to escape and help others too. How were they guarded or how were they watched closely so they wouldn't leave the uh, steamboats and, and not return? So some of the, some of the research I found that there, there was some, uh, some ships that would closely guard um, their, their lease because ultimately the steamboat captain uh, who, who most of the time, sometimes they own, own the steamboat or the steamboat owners themselves would be responsible for uh, the compensation if someone escaped. So also I found really interesting that there's a, a Kentucky uh, insurance company. I show an ad that I found in Louisville Courier to where a steamboat 
uh, owners could purchase insurance policies on uh, slaves. So that kind of told me like, wow, this is a this is something that really occurred a lot. If there's an ad in the Louisville Courier Journal saying, hey, come come get a policy. Uh, and but, you know, so sometimes that they would they would issue papers and those papers had to be checked on on board. Um, but, you know, with the nature of commerce, um, you know, if, if you're here in Paducah and they have, you know, a whole bunch of dry goods that need to be moved, let's say down to uh, or up to Owensboro, they would take whoever could get on the ship to get the job done. Um, and of course, you have a lot of, uh, you know, workers at the port and stuff waiting, you know, looking for work and, and they would get on the ship and, and, and go work. And then, you know, that may lead to an opportunity for them to to hop off and, and find a, a a boat across the river to Indiana. Uh, so so that is a few uh, um, instances I found to where the similar stories happen. Tell me about the um, the route of the of the steamboats. Did were there members of the enslaved community that were on board uh, in the deep south uh, in in Natchez, for example, uh, in the river pro ports there? And, and how far north did those steamboats travel? Oh, really? Yeah, really great question there. So, yeah, so typically the enslaved uh, uh, worked on the steamboats in the deep south. Um, they also visited on up towards my way to Paducah, uh, to, to uh, Cairo, um, and then uh, all the way up to Louisville. Now, uh, traditionally, they did not go past Cincinnati because of the anti-slave um, sentiments that were all along um, the, the river on up there. So there's actually, I found some instances to where in Covington or Louisville that they would actually drop their slaves off and they would be jailed in those cities until the steamboat returned to, to pick them up. Um, so, you know, really interesting point there. Um, and then on the Mississippi, they typically wouldn't go past St. Louis. Um, and that's just another way to keep them, um, you know, basically out of Illinois um, to where they could they could find a sympathetic person to help them uh, on take them on on up north. Um, so. So they were actually jailed. They, they were held they in were. bondage. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, there's a Kentucky, what they call a, a slave pen. That's at the Underground Railroad Museum. That would have been a similar uh, structure um, from the, the research that, that I've, I've found. Yeah, so a lot of various um, things. There's also another um, in my presentation I talk about, and I think, I think it may have been New Orleans, um, but it may have been another city, uh, but it was definitely in Louisiana, to where the city themselves would ban free uh, African-Americans from leaving the steamboats because they didn't want them to help aid uh, any slaves that they may come across. Um, so that's, to me, that's just another, uh, you know, documentation that, that this was definitely something that, that occurred very often. What did the steamboats uh, do for labor if they uh, took uh, most of the um, slaves off, uh, jailed them or held them until the steamboat returned? Would, were there enough workers to take their place? So, so typically, I found that there's a a, a, a pretty big mixture of, of different um, uh, workers on on these uh, boats. So, um, there were free African Americans. This was a way that they could actually earn a pretty good 
uh, living. And then, of course, you know, there was it was very interesting with the steamboats is that a lot of these workers were able to gain, uh, you know, respect. It's typically something that they couldn't earn in these communities in the South. Uh, you know, on on the, the steamboats, they were able to uh, to really find a, a place and 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 earn uh, respect that kind of wasn't afforded to them uh, in, in the communities that they lived in. Um, and then also I found there, there was a lot of Irish immigrants that, that would work the steamboats. And, and typically um, uh, another point to kind of strengthen my case uh, that of my presentation is that I found that steamboat captains on older uh, ships wouldn't employ uh, slaves as the firemen, so the person who's responsible for the boiler, because they were scared it was going to blow up. So they remedied the situation by putting Irish immigrants in that position. And so typically there was a pretty uh, big mix of different people on the boats for labor. But, you know, I mean, that's a really good point. They could have easily picked up some more workers. Um, if, you know, if you're in Covington, all you have to do is, is bounce across the river to Cincinnati. And, and there was people work waiting at those ports looking for work. Um, so, yeah, so that's, a, that's a, another really great question. Uh, Richard, uh, tell us about some of the personalities that you've researched, uh, one of those being William Wells Brown. And I'm sure you know, and uh, hopefully some of our listeners and our audience know that William Wells Brown uh, is one of our Chautauqua performers. Uh, Virgil Covington is uh, the uh, person here in Scott County who portrays William Wells Brown all across the state. Uh, William Wells Brown, um, you can tell us about him, but he's, uh, he's known for many things, but one of those is the, uh, the, the novel that he wrote uh, titled Clotel, C-L-O-T-E-L, which um, I, I believe our history tells us is the first novel uh, ever written and, and published by an African-American. But he also wrote many other things, and he has quite a history uh, um, he, he, himself. So uh, tell us about William Wells Brown and a couple of uh, other of the personalities that you profile in your talk. Uh, one second here. I'm sorry. I got to... Oh, yeah. So Brown was the one who, uh, from, from my research that I include on the presentation, was one of these examples of where they were in Cincinnati. And it was kind of the, the, the port itself was just extremely busy. There was a lot of, uh, you know, movement going on, steamboats loading, unloading. And Brown basically saw his opportunity uh, when his, his uh, slaveholder allowed him to kind of uh, freely walk along the, the river walk there. And, uh, you know, he saw an opportunity and he picked up his, his belongings and basically blended in with the crowd, leaving the steamboat. Um, and then he was able to, uh, you know, find his way through freedom through a sympathetic, uh, person there in Cincinnati. Um, so it's just kind of a really quick, um, you know, example of there of how he, he was able to just make a, a daring or uh, an escape there uh, by basically just blending in. Well, I would invite uh, again our uh, listeners uh, to look into uh, the history of his life. Uh, he's an extraordinary uh, character um, and has a quite a, uh, he was a prolific writer and uh, uh, lived in uh, uh, Great Britain for a while, uh, traveled uh, the world, traveled the United States, 
And um, the story of how he, there's always a question, uh, well, how could uh, an enslaved person uh, learn to read and write? They, they, there were no schools for um, African-Americans at that time. But the story uh, develops that uh, he was able to uh, be uh, self-educated as well as educated by some people that he, he worked for as a, as a youngster. So the whole story of William Wells Brown, um, uh, as tragic as it is, because as an enslaved person, he was still uh, being held for part of his life, but then uh, gained his freedom. So anyway, that's one of the characters that you profile in Cincinnati. I think there are a couple of others that I read uh, yeah. uh, about. So uh, John Stella Martin was is an example uh, that, that happened here close to me here in Paducah and in uh, uh, Cairo, Illinois, was kind of like a hot a hot spot. I found I found that city mentioned often in my research to where uh, there had to be a, a group of people helping um, slaves um, uh, with passage on up into the northern part of Illinois. Because uh, overall, I found that that Southern Illinois were, was was very sympathetic to the slave trade, and they would often, uh, if there was any African Americans that were traveling alone, they would often turn them over to authorities, and um, that was actually a uh, uh, a newly discovered thing that someone sent me uh, th this week was that that happened and they actually brought them here to Baduca to be jailed and so that they could figure out, OK, are you a runaway slave or are you indeed free? Uh, so Martin's story is, is really interesting. So the, the steamboat that he was he was he was working on, uh, actually, it was the Ohio River had frozen some. So they had to make a stop there in, in Cairo. And uh, it, it ended up that. Um, Again, it was, you know, a lot of stuff going on board and he was able to get to get his belongings and he, he got off the steamboat and, you know, again, walked up to the, the, the boardwalk there. And eventually he just kind of went to where he, he knew was the, the where he was trying to, to, to go. And that was the, the train station. And there he was able to meet someone uh, who helped him board a train for St. Louis uh, and then from St. Louis, he was able to to go ahead and find passage on up into, uh, you know, the, the northern states. Um, but he he again, he was he became a, a, a well-known abolitionist, too. Um, he traveled to Great Britain uh, to where he gained a lot of support for the union. And, and you know, that that was the, the big thing is that, you know, a lot of abolitionists went to Great Britain to kind of keep Great Britain out of siding with the South uh, during the Civil War. Uh, so he, he was very fascinating. And, you know, I thought it was just pretty cool that, you know, there's no telling how many times I've driven right past the place to where he made his escape. And, you know, unfortunately, there's no historical markers or anything documenting that. What about Henry Bibb? I was, good, I was just about to talk about Bibbs. Yeah, so Bibb is, is another really fascinating um, story that, again, really made a big impact uh, in, in his later years, but um, Bibb uh, was a Kentucky slave, and he was, you know, had, had, as many of them did, you know, tried to escape before, so typically he had, uh, he was really closely watched, and I think from our, some of my research that he had been sold a few times because of that, uh, but eventually he, he kind of makes his way up close to the in Indiana border, um, and he uh, seeks passage from his uh, his slaveholder to to go to the river, and I think he was going there to maybe to 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 sell some things or or 
looking for additional work. Um, so that's something I always kind of like to mention is what they call the Sunday wage. So typically some of the slaveholders, um, if, if they had trusted uh, their slave enough, would allow them to go seek additional wages. And so again, a lot of times uh, these, these enslaved um, workers knew to go to where the steamboats were at for looking for work. So this is exactly what Bibb did. And he went and he found uh, a steamboat and he boarded it and he took off and um, he uh, he traveled all the way up to Cincinnati. And, and in his memoirs, he talks about hiding on the deck and trying to stay in the shadows to where no one kind of knew that that he, he was escaping. Um, and then eventually it landed at, in Cincinnati and, and during one of the mornings. And again, it's that super busy uh, Riverport. He blends in with the people and he, he walks his way up. Uh, uh, I think it was Broadway there, but I know it was one of the main uh, streets there in Cincinnati. And um, he said in his memoirs that through some indirect questioning to some children that were playing, he was able to find the location of, of an African-American. And of course, uh, that helped lead him um, to his, his freedom up north. Now, Bib's story is really interesting because he actually comes back to try to get his wife and I think one of his, his children. And again, he puts them on a steamboat and, and they're trying to escape. And I can't exactly remember what city they were in, but um, they were captured. Um, and kind of the retribution for that was is that he, he's, his family was so deeper into to the South. Uh, but a very yes. interesting story. Isn't it amazing, Richard, uh, to read and hear of those stories of the enslaved that have written their, their life story, their autobiographies? And there are, um, I've just learned this in the last couple of years, uh, there are so many of those that are written. You, you think there's no actual record, uh, no actual facts um, that uh, tell us the history of uh, some of those uh, enslaved that uh, worked hard on the plantation, were either escaped or bought their freedom. Uh, you can learn so much from their their narratives, and uh, they're they're fascinating, both men and women. And there are many stories. Many of those characters are in Kentucky and out of Kentucky. So it's it's really uh, it's really quite interesting. You're, you've been listening to Richard Parker. Richard um, is one of our members of the Speakers Bureau uh, in Paducah. Uh, we've been talking about uh, his talk, Escape to Freedom, the role of the steamboat in the Underground Railroad. We're going to take a pause here and um, then come back and have Richard tell us about Kentucky's only Wild West show. And we'll give you also a, a tease uh, on a talk uh, and a walk a talk and a walk that he makes in Paducah on Paducah's bourbon trail. So we'll be right back after this word from our good friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. 
Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Richard Parker also uh, gives us an idea of um, uh, something quite unique. Um, the only other Wild West show I've ever known of, uh, Richard, was uh, Guntown Mountain in Cave City, Kentucky, which long ago uh, shut down. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't uh, established uh, back in 1900. So tell us uh, about your uh, conversation that you have with folks who want to hear you about Kentucky's only Wild West show. Yeah, so this is uh, this was a traveling Wild West show that that visited uh, places all across Kentucky and into uh, uh, the South and even up into parts of Indiana and uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio. So really interesting um, story here, but it was put together uh, by, by four brothers with the last name Terrell. Um, and then mainly two of them kind of ran the show and one by the name of Fletcher managed it on the road. Uh, but eventually this, this Wild West show grew um, to uh, some, some uh, experts say it was the second largest behind Buffalo Bill at one point, and that was kind of measured by how many uh, railroad cars they had. Um, so I've been researching this for nearly a decade now, and it is just, it's one of those stories that just doesn't stop. There's just always so much coming out of it. Um, but it, it played a massive role into kind of bringing people to Paducah to, to work uh, on, on this show. Um, and then the Terrells themselves were a really well-prominent family here in Paducah. And uh, I guess about a year and a half ago that I discovered that uh, Bill Samuels um, of Maker's Mark, his, his mother was actually a Terrell. Uh, so Paducah has a really unique question or uh, connection to the Samuels family. And I recently just got to interview Bill Samuels Jr. And we, we, we talked some about the Wild West show and I sent him all my research on it. And he was, he was really impressed with um, all, all the stuff I've tracked down about it, but it is just absolutely fascinating. Tell us uh, too about something that you've just begun. Well, first of all, give us just a, a an idea about Atomic City Tours and uh, the bourbon uh, tasting and uh, tour that you deliver to the I would imagine uh, citizens in Paducah, as well as uh, visitors, uh, tourists that that come through. Uh, talk about that a little bit, if you will. Yeah. So the the tour is kind of uh, the the name of the tour is called Forgotten Spirits, and it's a focus on Paducah's connection to the bourbon industry. And Paducah plays a really unique role uh, that uh, really kind of impacted the bourbon industry in in a non traditional way. Um, so first of all, again, we're on that Ohio River. That's the interstate. Um, every, uh, you know, bourbon barrel that came down on a flatboat going to New Orleans to be sold came right through Paducah. Um, so we, we kind of start our, our guests with, with that, talking about the, that role. Um, and then again, we, we, I tie into uh, my talk, the uh, uh, escape to freedom, the role of the roustabouts, uh, loading and unloading that bourbon and bringing it into um, these warehouses in Paducah. Um, and then we also focus on the Jewish influence um, in Paducah. And this is a really unique fact because our a, a really unique um, aspect to our story is that in 1894, uh, that there were six wholesale whiskey dis, uh, distributors here, and five of those were Jewish. Um, so a really 
unique role that was being played here um, in, in our city. And so typically what would happen was is that these, these wholesale whiskey distributors would buy barrels from various distilleries in, in uh, central Kentucky. Um, they would ship them down the, the Ohio River um, here to Paducah. It would be unloaded by the roustabouts, and then it would be brought into uh, their buildings, uh, typically along 2nd Street here in Paducah. And um, they would they would bring them in here. Um, sometimes they would just sell it straight out. Um, um, and then other times they would actually do what's called rectifying. So they would take various uh, blends of bourbon and mix them together to kind of make a sweeter or, or smoother bourbon. Um, and then they would actually just rename them, come up with their own names and then sell them. So there's there's uh, two different people that we profile um, who were rectifiers on, on the tour. And probably the most well-known uh, is Isaac Wolf Bernheim, who turns into one of Kentucky's largest bourbon uh, barons. And we actually visit the spot to where he created his uh, now available again, uh, the I.W. Harper bourbon brand um, here in uh, Paducah. And Bernheim was actually here for 20 years. And so there's a there's a lot of different places that that he visited and so he's kind of the star of our show uh because um all of the uh brands that we explore uh all have a, a tie back to bernheim's um somewhere and uh to to add to we there's still four bourbon brands that have pretty strong ties to paducah um, and then we, we visit those spots to, to where those ties were at. Um, so it's really unique story that, that we have here. And there's just a ton um, of, of history that, that the city played as kind of like I was saying, this, this kind of um, unique aspect of the bourbon industry. How long have you and your wife, Emily, uh, operated uh, Atomic City Tours? So our first tour was in June. So um, we've we've done uh, three tours. We have a private tour tomorrow. It's our first private tour for a group. Um, and then we have uh, four remaining. We got two here in August and then two in September. Um, and then we'll start back up next year, probably around April. Uh, once it starts, the weather starts kind of because uh, uh, March here in Paducah could be kind of wet and, and can be cold. So we'll probably start those back up. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a 0.7 miles long. Um, it's an hour tour, uh, and we, we don't really go past Second Street here um, in Paducah, so we have very wide sidewalks here. Um, and then afterwards, we've actually partnered with, we have a bourbon bar here in Paducah called Barrow and Bond, and they have created um, a, a bourbon flight based upon those four uh, bourbons that you can go in, and then you can purchase it from them and then try it. Um, so it adds a really cool uh, aspect to the tour. You know, you get to learn about the history and then you get to actually taste it. Um, so we were we were really excited when they agreed to uh, to have us along with with that. I want to mention one other thing to you and ask you to elaborate on it just a bit. Uh, but uh, at the very beginning of our conversation, you said that at times during the year at Paducah in normal times when we're not dealing with a pandemic, uh, as many as 40 steamboats uh, make their way in and out of Paducah. Now, you, were you talking about present day? I, if that's true, I, I think that would be of a big surprise to a lot of Kentuckians who uh, didn't realize that they could go to Paducah, Kentucky and, um, and see all of this and, and maybe even travel on board uh, a steamboat. 
Yeah, so there's there's various Riverport um, cruises that that are river cruises that you can take along the Ohio and the Mississippi and and uh, Paducah's. You know, we're such a picturesque town here that a lot of times that these these steamboats stop. So I think it's about I think it's about forty, and they they typically start uh, in early spring and and they'll go all the way right up until um, you know um, I guess November until it starts to really get cold. Um, but they come and they visit and um, the, the city's great about giving. Um, they have some bus tours that they do. Uh, and they give uh, the visitors a local uh, kind of tour through Paducah and you get to see some of the various uh, historical buildings and learn about our history. Um, and then, of course, there's just hundreds of people walking around downtown visiting our uh, our various our stores and our restaurants. Um, so it's, it's a really unique thing. Um, there's typically one to two to sometimes three every uh, every weekend or throughout the week too, and you know sometimes we even have two down there of of these uh, companies that have stopped here. So it's it's really neat. It's a, a really great addition to our city um, that you know people are wanting to come see us and visit. Um, um, but, you know, I, I encourage all, all of my fellow Kentuckians that, you know, it's, it's a really cool place just to come spend a weekend in um, and learn about our history because we have some really important uh, people, places, and events that's really played into a national role uh, from Paducah. Well, you're exactly right, Richard. And let me just add my two cents uh, uh, to that uh, endorsement of Paducah as being a, a fine city. Uh, to visit or, or to live in. Uh, a lot of uh, Kentucky Humanities uh, friends and supporters uh, uh, are from that area. Uh, we rely on um, our good friend, Bobby Wrinkle, who's a member of our board of directors uh, to steer us in the right direction on, um, on people that we should uh, expose and, and, and shine some light on. In fact, uh, She's the one who first mentioned uh, you when you had already been a member of our Speakers Bureau and were uh, doing a, a talk for the McCracken County Library where Bobby is. So we, uh, we love having her on board and uh, spreading the, the gospel of the uh, humanities across the, the Commonwealth. So Richard Parker, uh, to you and, and to your wife and to Atomic City Tours, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. And if we can and do anything for you in the home office in Lexington, let us know. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.